Hello, everyone. This is Michael Govier from the Cinema 9 Podcast, and you are listening to Pop Goes Your World. If you haven't already, subscribe on iTunes. And while you're there, please leave us a rating and review. And now it's time for our feature presentation. I'm Chris McBrien, and the pop culture from Generation X is everything to me. And I'm Derek Myers, and I'm here to educate Chris on the great pop culture of today's generation. Episode 248, School of Rock Movie Review. McBrien along with Derek Myers and this is Pop Goes Your World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Now we've been away for a few weeks. Derek had some vacation time recently and he got to get away. Me? I stayed home here in Canada and shoveled snow. <laughs> uh, we filled in with a few best of episodes the, the past few weeks just to keep things consistent. But now we're back. And uh, this season, we've been looking at movies celebrating milestone anniversaries. And it was over to me for this week's movie. I think maybe surprisingly, I went with School of Rock from 2003. It's 20 years old. And I thought it was worth going back and taking a look at, I think. But uh, before we get to that, Derek, what pop culture have you been able to take in lately, my friend? Educate me on some stuff that you were able to do on vacation. All right. Well, I uh, I watched a ton of stuff, but I'm not going to do the long, long rundown. I've limited it to sort of five topics. Okay. So I'm going to try and be quick on some of them. I think some of them uh, you will have no comments on and a few you may have some questions <laughs> okay. about. So we'll start with the new one, which I know you'll have no questions on. It went out to the theater before I left for my vacation and we saw the new offering from the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania. Oh. I liked it. Uh, I think it's better than the last couple of Marvel movies they put out. Uh, I can see how this is trying to now set up sort of their next phase, their next story arc. Uh, the movie wasn't perfect, but uh, I really like Paul Rudd. I think he's really well cast as Ant-Man. I like the supporting cast in this movie. Uh, I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, I would say probably give it like maybe a B minus. Like it was good, but not amazing. But it's better than a lot of the stuff that's come out recently. So. That was my uh, that was my Ant Man review. Okay. Uh, all right. Then I saw a few older movies and a few not so older movies. So I had a chance to watch the 1991 film Bugsy, starring um, uh, Warren Beatty and uh, Annette Bening. Okay. Have you seen Bugsy? 1991. No. Big movie nominated for a whole bunch of Oscars. No, no, I'm familiar with it, but I, I never watched. I never really had any interest to watch it. That's where he met her, though. Yeah. Yeah. So. I never watched it. I knew it was loosely based on the gangster Bugsy, um, who who is credited with sort of creating Las Vegas. Now, I've watched some documentaries recently about the history of Vegas, and they've really sort of enlightened me. And, you know, like the song says about the documentaries, like it's learning about the world. <laughs> and so... When and I watched like this Vegas, movie, so. and I love Vegas, I'm you a Vegas do. guy. So I watched this movie a couple of weeks ago, and... I really didn't like it that much because they were really fast and loose with the truth. And to the point where some of the things that they showed in the movie were just flat out 
wrong. And I was kind of ticked off the way that some of these things were being portrayed. So I really, really had a hard time enjoying this movie. I know in the moment it was praised up and down the board and the nominations for everything here, there and everywhere. And in the time, maybe it was, but looking back at it now, I didn't care for it. It was way too long. It didn't hold up way too many inaccuracies. No thumbs down for me on Bugsy. Hmm. I had a chance to revisit the new Planet of the Apes trilogy that, that came out in the last 10 years. So 2011, they did Rise they of the Planet of the Apes. They made three of them? Yeah. Recently? So they did oh my God. Rise of the Planet of the Apes in 2011, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes in 2014, and War for the Planet of the Apes 2017. Hold on, on a the second first. here. When, yeah. when they did the remake of this, they didn't start with just Planet of the Apes? No. Oh they God. did Rise of the Planet of the Apes. Because oh in the goodness. first one... <clears throat> It's all about how it starts. All right. And I mean, it sounds like you haven't seen it and I definitely want to watch it at some point in the near future for this podcast because I think the first one's really, really good. Uh, Well, I actually thought they were all really, really good. But um, the first two I saw in the theater, the third one I never got around to watching. And so, uh, yeah, I went back and revisited those while I was on vacation and uh, and I I thought they held up really well. I really enjoyed them. So, yeah, put that on your, you know, put that on your checklist. We will come back and and rewatch the first episode of this this re-kickoff here from 2011 Rise of the Planet of the Apes at some point in the near future. Um, And they're all available on Disney Plus. So they were nice and easy. Was it like Tim Burton or somebody? No, well, he did one in the 90s, which flopped big time. Oh, so that was okay. Okay. Yeah. Uh, okay. <sighs> then we're going way back to 1982, right in your wheelhouse. Oh, this, this sounds good. All right, bring it on. All right. We got uh, 1982, Michael Caine and Christopher Reeve. This is Christopher Reeve, hot as a pistol, right off of Superman. And he does this movie called Death Trap. Yep. Have you seen it? Uh, no. But, but are I'm, you I'm familiar, familiar with it? Hell so yeah, I'm very familiar with it. It's a play within a play. So it's based on a long running play Mm -hmm. and it's about a playwright who's struggling to come up with his next great idea. And so the, the, the characters in the play uh, basically reflect the actors that are performing it. It's sort of that play within a play thing. Mm -hmm. It was really good. Like it was really, really good. I had always remembered seeing it when we were in blockbuster. It was a popular rental. The cover box, the poster for the movie is basically it's all white. Mm -hmm. And then in the bottom right corner, there's a box that looks very much like a Rubik's cube and the stars you can see it's like they're in the box and they're, they're lifting it up and their heads are just popping out of the box. And I, it was just, it's very, very distinct because the, the poster is all white except for this very colorful Rubik's cube in the bottom corner. So it always stuck with me. And when I saw it coming up in the lineup, I thought, is that the one? And yeah, no, it was, it was really good. I can't believe it took me this long to watch it. It was great. If you haven't seen it and you can find it on the streamers, death trap from 1982, really good. Don't read a lot about it though. Cause it's got a lot of twists and turns. It's, it's mm-hmm. like a murder mystery. So the less, you know, going in the better, but it was, it was really, really good. I love it when these old movies hold up like that. Um, especially when it's like, you know, Oh, it's got twists and turns and I have no idea what the answer is going to be. I don't know. You know, it's the who done it. Well, I don't know who done it. So it was, uh, it was a lot of fun. And I feel like Christopher Reeve, like he's known for Superman, but he was actually a pretty good actor. And that's what I read. That yeah. was why he took this because yeah. he had done Superman one, Superman two, and he was worried about getting typecast. Mm-hmm. So he, he took on this role in death trap and uh, people were like, Oh, is he the right fit? And then he got a lot of critical praise for it and he deserved it. He was, he was uh, really good in it. So yeah, death trap, 1982, take a look for it. It was great. And then finally I had a chance to watch a documentary for 40 days and 40 nights. Watch documentary. Likes to learn about the world. It's Derek's documentaries. Derek's documentaries. A 
of course you got no chance to watch a documentary. That's your thing. And we get well, to play the song. I had a chance to watch a few, but I'm just okay. going to focus on the one that most Narrow people Narrow it down. Be, what did you watch? So, so uh, I watched it on Netflix. It was an eight-part series called Full Swing, and it's about golf, the PGA Golf Tour. Okay. So as what's becoming a very popular trend in, uh, in sports reality programming is a uh, camera crew will follow around a team or a group of athletes for a season. And then after the end of the season, or even sometimes as it's happening, they'll start airing the episode so that you get the behind-the-scenes looks at your favorite athletes. So instead of just watching them perform on the court, on the field, on the ice, you get to see a lot of behind the, behind the scenes stuff. So this is the latest offering and it's the first one about golf and it's eight episodes and it mostly features each episode sort of follows one main golfer. And it's all about the last season of the PGA tour. Now I enjoy golf. I'm, I mean, I don't enjoy playing it cause I suck at it, but I enjoy watching golf, but I don't really follow it very closely. I know just enough that if it's on, I can follow it. So this actually was really good for me because I didn't know who any of these people were because it's all the new up and coming superstars in the golf world. I really followed golf in the last decade, so I didn't know any of them. I didn't know who was going to win which tournaments. I didn't know who was friends with who. And apparently last year in PGA uh, golf, there was like this big rah, rah, rah because there was a rival professional golf league that was started up in the Middle East. And so part of what this series talks about is like how some of the professional golfers basically took this hundred years of history of the PGA and just went, screw you guys, I'm going for the money. And so it was really, really fascinating. I mean, you don't have to be a golf fan to watch this series. Uh, the golf, the, the actual golfing part of it is not nearly as, as prominent as just the lives of these people and the things they have to do to be great and the, the problems they face and the challenges they face. Like one of the guys said, he goes, Somebody has to be the last guy on the PGA Tour. Like, I think they let in 130 people or something. And he's like, someone's got to be 130. That's me. And, like, he just owns it. He's like, I'm never going to win. I'm just good enough to be a professional. And even the guy who makes the minimum amount as a pro has a pretty good living. And I get to play golf for a living. And this feeds my family. And it's like, it was a really good series called Full Swing. Uh, mm -hmm. It's on Netflix. Eight episodes are about 45 minutes a pop. So, yeah, check it out. Two thumbs up. Very cool. Okay. So recently, Derek, I found there's a local TV station here in Canada that's showing episodes of The Love Boat. And also, the Game Show Network has been showing episodes of Tattletales. Uh, you know, the game of celebrity gossip. Yeah, with not a Conley. fan of Tattletales. Oh, I love that show. So the other day, my wife is like watching TV and then like, you know, she's poking around on there. And all of a sudden, she's like, what the hell's going on? The PVR is 95% full. <laughs> <laughs> well, it turns out I recorded just maybe a few episodes of The Love Boat and Tattletales. <laughs> She's like, 105 episodes of The Love Boat? 35 episodes of Tattletales? So she says to me, she's like, you have to get these off the PVR. So needless to say, I was more than happy to oblige. So I've spent the better part of the past few weeks when you've been on vacation watching The Love Boat and Tattletales. So what I'd like to talk about, though, is The Love Boat. So this one episode in particular that I watched. First of all, Lyle Wagoner was on it. I don't know if you okay. know him. Do you know him? Yeah, I do. Yeah, oh yeah. You remember what show he was on? So he was on this episode, but the, he's not, he's not the thing I want to talk about. Okay. And you know, I'm all about old TV shows and movies 
from the 70s and 80s. It's kind of my thing, Derek, you know. No kidding. <laughs> so uh, let's just say that sometimes some of the material on these old shows doesn't hold up all that well. You know, just yeah, no kidding. Things, right. <laughs> so, so the episode that I watched of the love boat just the other day, um, you know how they always have like three stories going on in each episode. Well, this one had, you know, a story with Lyle Wagner, of course. And then also there was another story with Joyce DeWitt and she yeah, played yeah. this like famous movie star. And there's this paparazzi reporter who's following her around the ship and he's trying to get a story, you know, on, on who she's on the ship with. You know, which, what guy is she with sort of thing. And it turns out that she has a son and she doesn't want anyone to know about her son. The thing is, it's because her son is, he's developmentally delayed, right? Okay. She's like, oh no, he's and I spit out my drink. And like, I'm like, oh my God, she said, and then a bit later in the episode, the kid has to go to the doctor and she says to Doc Bricker, she's like, did you notice anything about my son? And the doc's like, yes, I noticed he's a little slow. And she's like, oh, you don't have to use euphemisms, doc. Billy's been since birth. And I spit out my drink again. I'm like, oh my God, I couldn't believe it. So I went into this whole thing, watching these episodes of Tattletales and Love Boat, thinking that Tattletales would be the show that had the offensive material in it. But boy, was I wrong. <laughs> oh my God. Anyway, here's it. Here's your dad joke of the week. Derek, why did the chicken cross the road? To get to the other side. No, because he was... He was Joyce DeWitt's chicken. Wow. Oh, man. That's, that's a low blow, man. I am going to hell. your head counselor. I did not enjoy this anymore the second time. <laughs> What's going on? What's wrong? Never seen it. Oh, Never wow. interested in seeing it. No desire to see it. Was not interested at all. Okay, well, I paid $200 for these shoes, but I mean, I'm the best. It's certainly tame by today's standards. There's a very fat pair of pants hanging from the flagpole this morning. It is not something I think I ever need to see again. Oh! Matt Damon. Matt Damon. It's, a, it's hard to believe, but it's actually been 20 years since School of Rock came out. And I think it's also hard to believe that I suggested this movie, since I usually don't watch anything after 1989, unless I'm forced to do so, usually by you, Derek. Yep. Uh, so, you know, we've been looking back at movies celebrating milestone anniversaries this season. And I went with School of Rock, like I said, from 2003. So it's like over 10 years past my cutoff you know, for pop culture. So now, Derek, you you obviously had seen this movie before. I'm assuming that you have anyway. Yeah, um, I, I definitely remember seeing it on video after like, when it came out. Uh, like we've said before, uh, when we did our Jumanji review, I'm not a big fan of Jack Black. I mean, I get that a lot of people think he's great and he has his moments. And I actually liked him a lot in the Jumanji uh, Welcome to the Jungle that we reviewed not too long ago. But I, I, I'm just... I, I, it's not my particular brand of humor. So when this movie came out, I know a lot of people went to see it and really liked it. And I got a lot of, got a really good review. So I didn't waste money going to see it in the theater. Uh, I do remember seeing it on home video and I remember sort of going, eh, it was just okay. It, I didn't hate it, but I definitely don't remember loving it. So that was, and that was 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. So this was the first time in 20 years that I had a chance to revisit this movie. So now after 20 years, what are your initial thoughts on how it holds up? 
I actually liked it a lot more than I was expecting to. Oh, interesting. Um, I, I it, it had some issues. Um, partly, I like I was watching it with the 2023 lens, mm-hmm. as we often do. So there were some things as I'm watching this, I'm just thinking to myself, well, that would never work today, or that would never happen today, or these would be consequences of what's going on today. But for, <laughs> nothing, for see, nothing like Joyce DeWitt on the love boat. Though, yeah, no kidding. <laughs> um, but uh, no, I, I, I liked them. I, I guess I didn't really remember a lot of the specifics. And I think when we did our episode about teachers a couple of weeks ago, and you had uh, you had selected Jack Black's character here from School of Rock as oh, yeah. one of the one of your favorite teachers on TV or in the movies, um, you would sort of framed it for me in a way that I didn't remember. So when I went back and watched it and I was sort of still in the back of my mind thinking about the positivity that you had wrapped around this when we had done our previous show, mm-hmm. I think that helped a little bit. I was able oh, to to really, you know, to really see the the positive uh, the positive elements he had, even though he wasn't in the course of the movie. He's not a real teacher. He's not a accredited teacher. He does a good job of all the things that you would hope a good teacher would do, um, along with a few pretty heinous shenanigans but uh anyway we'll get to that so for me it's obviously outside of my comfort zone of movies since it came out in the 2000s but i actually like this movie a lot i liked it when i when i first saw it like 20 years ago and i liked it after i watched it again this past week but first let's take a little trip back to the year 2003 so derek let me ask you this if i you're a gambling guy Yes, if I, I am. Set, if I set the over-under at 25, do you think School of Rock finished higher or lower than the 25th spot at the box office back in 2003? Uh, probably lower because it wasn't a sequel. I figured the year was probably filled with sequels. You are correct. It was the 35th overall film at the box office. It took in $79.8 million. That's just crazy, by the way. You know, that a movie can take in almost $80 million and finish 35th overall. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. It's like some, uh, although it did finish ahead of movies like Old School, was like 37th at 75.5 million. Kill Bill Volume 1 was 38th. And, and From Justin to Kelly was 178th. So, you know, beat that. What, was the, what, was the, what were the top three movies of the year? Do you have the list there? Yeah, it was Finding Nemo was number one. Okay. It took in like $340 million. Sure. Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl. I'm oh, assuming there's that's a sequel. sequel. Yep. The Matrix Reloaded, sequel. Sequel. The Lord of the Rings, Return of the King, sequel. Bruce Almighty, sequel. Isn't, was it not a sequel? Bruce uh, Almighty? Oh, no, no it was uh, Evan, Almighty. Evan Almighty was a sequel. X2, X-Men United, sequel. sequel. Elf yeah. and Chicago. And then, of course, Terminator 3, Rise of the Machines, and Bad Boys 2 finished up the top 10. So, so still a lot of sequels, sequels in the top 10. And so then even other ones just outside of it, like Matrix Revolutions and Too Fast, yeah. Too Furious, and oh, just crap, all these sequels. So yeah, so um, the thing was, though, this movie actually debuted at number one at the domestic box office, and it stayed in the top 10 for six weeks. It was oh. made on a budget of $35 million, but it made $131 million worldwide. So nice. it was pretty much you know popular. Now the director was Richard Linklater. He also did yeah. Dazed and Confused in '93, and that that trilogy like Before Sunset with Ethan Hawke and Julie Delpy. But other than that, he didn't do a whole lot else. But this movie was so it was popular, but at the box office, but not like hugely popular, I guess. 
but it was actually pretty popular with critics, surprisingly. So it won or was nominated for a bunch of awards. It won. It was up uh, for Best Song for Teacher's Pet at the Critics' Choice Awards that year. Uh, Golden Globes, it was nominated for Best Performance by an Actor, Jack Black. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a, I don't know what the hell that award is. Uh, winner, it, it won a mo- Movies for Grownups Award, whatever the hell that is. Sure. Uh, but it was, it was a grant. It was nominated for a Grammy for Best Soundtrack Album for a motion picture. Um, it uh, was nominated for a New York Film Critics Circle Award for, for Jack Black for his acting. And the AARP um, gave it a nomination in the, the Movies for Grownups Awards as well. And, and we don't want to knock the AARP because I don't know if you remember, Derek, we were nominated as one of the 10 best podcasts that women should be listening to back in 2018 and also in 2021 by the AARP. So well, there you go. We like those people. So let's talk a little bit about the cast. We usually like to start there. So obviously sure. we want to start with Jack Black. You're right. Like you mentioned, like you're not a big fan of his, right? And as I mentioned on previous shows too, I'm not a huge fan of him either. You know, I didn't like him in um, that King Kong remake from Peter Jackson. Mm-hmm. And I really didn't like him in that movie Shallow Hal. But I have to say School of Rock is the perfect vehicle for him and his talent. Every once in a while, there's like a perfect vehicle that comes out for a particular actor. And another one that I think of is I'm not a huge Jim Carrey fan either. I don't know if that's good or bad. Yeah, no, same. But he's got a few that I really like. Liar, Liar. Remember that movie from 97? That was the perfect vehicle for him, I think. And the same goes here for Jack Black for me. Like no one else could play this part. And I don't think any other script could kind of let him use his talent in such a unique way. It was just a perfect fit. You agree with that at least? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I can't imagine and I, anybody and I think, else playing this. Honestly, I think, you know, when uh, when the world loses Jack Black, this will be the first line of his obituary. Jack Black, known for School of Rock. Like, yeah. I, I think that this is to, to sort of lean on the, the trope from one of the other podcasts I listened to. Like, this was his apex. I think this is the... This was him at the, the the height of his power. This was him reaching a very mainstream audience in a way that maybe he hadn't connected with with uh, you know a lot of people in the past. And I think the fact that you know you had this strong script, a strong director, uh, you know, like you said, it it really allowed him to showcase his particular talents in a way that I'd like to I'm going to say are like palatable, right? A lot of what I find with Jack Black for me is a little over the top for my tastes, but I felt that this let him do some of that wackiness but in the context that it was being presented it made perfect sense just like you were saying jim carrey and liar liar i'm not a big fan of him but i found that that in the context of that movie what they had him do was was great so yeah i think i think this is a you know a very uh very good one for jack black if not if not one of his best i think you're right like in terms of the script like when mike wright wrote, wrote this script you know he did it kind of with jack black in mind and just let him kind of run loose and so did the director Linklater just let him just kind of run loose and improv a lot of stuff. So it was just perfect for him. I also want to talk about Joan Cusack. I... Who I totally forgot was in this movie until she appeared on screen. I love, like, love, 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 love Joan Cusack. Her first movie ever was 1980's My Bodyguard. A personal favorite of mine, as you know, Derek. Yep. Um, And she was also amazing in 16 Candles. Although I don't even think she had a line in that movie. But that, remember, she had that sweater with that little dress on it. 
and she uses the dress to wipe her mouth at the drinking fountain. Yes, she was wearing the yes, neck yes. brace. Remember that? Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I met her at Fan Expo in Toronto back in 2016. I absolutely love her. She is absolutely perfect in this part too. She was perfect. She plays that strict principle, but she's always got this like vulnerability to her. I don't know. I thought she was just great in this. And and she had the absolute best line in one of the best scenes of this movie, which I'll get to later. But uh, so so you forgot that she was in this, but but did you like her in the role? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I like her. her I like I'm a fan of, of her as well. Um, I, I mean, I don't think she ever had that breakout career where she was the leading no. lady and, and no. like she's a good supporting character just un, it's unfortunate that she never had uh, uh an opportunity to to be the lead but as a supporting character in this one i think she did a good job sarah silverman want to mention her so sarah silverman maybe it's just me i thought she, i think she's really hot like she's a really attractive woman i think and i like how she's made out to be the bad guy here but the thing is as i'm watching this movie i'm trying to take a step back and i'm looking at it and i'm like She's not the bad guy. You know, she's she's actually not in the wrong at all in this movie. She's trying to stick up for her boyfriend for being taken advantage of by this, like, lazy freeloader. So, like, kind of good for her. I don't know. It's funny how she's positioned as being the bad guy and, and Jack Black's the good guy. But really, from a certain perspective, it's the other way around. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm, I'm personally not a big fan of Sarah Silverman, but uh, I did think that the the character she was playing, yeah, to your point, um, they they paint her as the villain. Yeah, there are some things that she does and she says, you're like, well, you're not necessarily, uh, you know, the hero all the time. But I do think uh, on its face, what she did made a lot more sense than what some of the other characters were doing. Like when she she calls the police to, to rat him out there later in the movie and everyone's like, oh, how could you do that? How could you do that? I'm like. Because that's the right thing to do in that yeah. circumstance. Like you can't, um, you can't just paint her with that brush and say, "Well, she's a she's the mean girlfriend." It's like, no, she's the voice of reason in in what is otherwise a pretty zany movie. So Mike White was the real Ned Schneebly, and I didn't really know him right away from anything else. But he's more of a writer than an actor. He wrote the screenplay for this movie, like I mentioned, and he wrote the movie Chuck and Buck. And he was a writer on John Apatow's Freaks and Geeks, which, by the well, way, is one of the best TV shows ever that came out even after my threshold. Yeah. And and more recently, he's been in the in the media because he was the, the creator of the White Lotus TV series, which has now had two very successful seasons. And then I remember like not that I watch it a lot, but I remember seeing him on The Amazing Race, too. He was on that show. I, I don't know if it was him and his I'll dad take the word for it. I, I can't remember. So I want to talk a little bit about when we're talking about the cast, the kids. So I thought they were really well cast. Yeah. And you could tell, I think for the most part, they weren't actors. Like they just went out and got kids that could play instruments, you know, except for Summer Wheatley, uh, Miranda Cosgrove. You could mm-hmm. tell she was a child actor, you know, and I also thought... The kid that was the band's stylist, like he came off as a bit of an actor too. But like Lawrence, he was just a piano player. And Joey Gatos Jr. is a guitarist. You know, yeah. the, the, these were their only acting credits that they ever had. You know, I think they just worked with them and, you know, just tried to get a performance out of these kids. Um, the kid that was the drummer, he died a couple of years ago. Eh? Oh, really? Yeah, he Didn't was riding that. his bike in Chicago. He got hit by a car. You Jeez. Know? 
Yeah, crazy. But anyway, I thought I thought they were all really well cast, and I thought they did a great job. Of all the kids, did you have a favorite? No, honestly, I'm not a big fan of kids in movies. So, I mean, I mean, I didn't dislike them, but I certainly didn't have a favorite. Uh, so I really liked Alicia. She was the one with the braces. I thought she, she had a few really good lines, especially she had some really good put downs in Jack Black. But my favorite was Marta. Do you remember her? She was a little blonde girl. She had pigtails. She was like the backup singer. She oh, had, yeah, yeah. She had this smile and these dimples. <laughs> I couldn't help but smile every time she was on camera. I don't. I love the scene at the end, which we'll get to in a bit, too. When the credits are rolling and Jack Black is like, you know, improvising everything. He's like rolling around on the floor and she's just cracking up the whole time in that scene. I don't know. I was laughing at that part. So, I mean, Jack Black was being a goof, but, and that was funny, but I was mostly laughing at her. So I think she was my favorite of all of them. So now speaking about the kids, I think that's probably the best part of this movie. And I know you don't really like kids apparently in movies, but and it's, it's not the fact that, that he comes in there and teaches them about rock. That wasn't the real takeaway, at least it wasn't for me. I thought the most important thing was how he comes into the class and he just lets them be themselves. Like he doesn't judge them. He doesn't question them. He just encourages them to be themselves, like just kind of accept themselves and, and, and learn like it's okay to be different. You know, like to me, that was the heart of this movie. Do you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, like Tamika, she thinks she's fat, you know, and she's like, people are going to laugh at me. And Lawrence, I thought was, I thought that was really, like, he doesn't think he's cool. He's like, I shouldn't be in the band. I'm not cool. Nobody ever talks to me. And Jack Black's like, dude, if you're in a band, you're super cool. You're the bee's knees, you know, and he makes the kids smile, you know, mm-hmm. and, and then they do this awesome handshake thing together where they're he's like kicking the, the, the feet and stuff. It's. And then, and like later when he's given out the band jobs and he's like on keyboards, Lawrence, Mr. Cool, he calls him. <laughs> like it's just, I don't know. He pumps these kids up. I thought that was really good. And then, um, that Billy wants to be the fashion designer. So he's like, okay, yes. fancy pants, you're designing the band's clothes. Like he doesn't even question anybody. He just encourages them just to do their thing and be themselves. So I thought that was a big sort of central part of the movie, you know? Yeah, and like I said, uh, you had sort of uh, primed that up in a, in one of our previous shows. So because I was a little more uh, aware that that was a part of this, I was certainly on the lookout for those scenes and and certainly more receptive to what was going on. So, but no, I, I agree with uh, with what you're saying. Like it's uh, it, it's good uh, it's good on him to to it's good on that character to do those things and have those traits because it, it, it helps sell the positivity of the, the overall message of the movie, which I got to think is partly why it, it hit so hard or hit so well rather with, uh, with so many people and why it holds up for a lot of people that, that still think this is a, a great movie and, and will say like, Oh, this is one of my all time. I know some people that are like, this is one of my favorite movies of all time. I was like, wow, I, I wouldn't go that far, but mm-hmm. I can see what you could take out of right. this where you would, you would definitely say, Oh, this is something I could rewatch again and again. So, all right, so I have a question for you, Derek. Sure. Is it School of Rock or The School of Rock? Because this comes up a few times in the movie. So I'm assuming, like as I'm watching it, I'm kind of coming to the conclusion that this movie maybe had a working title of The School of Rock, and then it changed to School of Rock and dropped the the, you know, when the movie came out. Because the yeah, movie yeah. poster and the DVD cover, they both say, School of Rock. 
Yeah, that's what I'm just looking at now in the IMDb, and I can see the movie poster here. It's, yeah, just as School, School of Rock. Rock. But you're but, right. But it, when the movie opens possibly, up, remember, yeah. remember the cameras walking them through the entrance and into that rock club? There's a neon sign on the wall that says, The School of Rock. And then when the girls name the band, they open up the T-shirt and it says School of Rock. But then Jack Black is like, the School of Rock, the School of Rock. So I don't know which one is it or am I just reading too much into it? I I think you're dwelling on the wrong parts of this. But it does make me think back to the movie The Commitments, which I talked about on an episode not too long ago, where when they're trying to name their band, Mm -hmm. uh, that's what one of the guys says. He goes, it has to be the something. All the best bands are the something so when you started just talking about this that's immediately where my mind went was oh i wonder if that's part of the 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 legend of of rock bands is you want to be famous you got to be a the something Mm -hmm. so uh so just to set the movie up you know obviously it opens with jack black in this band and he's like totally self-indulgent and he does these like 20 minute guitar solos and even the solo that he's playing on stage in the club in the in the first scene it doesn't even jive with the groove of the song He's yeah. just, it's just this mishmash of like self-indulgent crap. And then he does the stage dive. No one catches when he falls. So the band fires him. And I love when they kick him out of the band. And when he's walking out, he stops and he turns and he kicks the drum cymbal. It's like yeah. this little minor thing. I don't know why I laughed. It's like non-destructive. He just releases all this energy when he does this. I don't know. It made me laugh. I thought that was kind of funny. And then... So he gets fired from the band and uh, then his roommate, Mike White, is the substitute teacher. He apparently used to be a goth rocker because Jack Black shows him this Polaroid, right? And he's like in like this goth makeup, but they never really explain that a whole lot. Like, so I guess did they used to be in a punk rock band together? Like That's what's implied. Yeah, I think it's the implications they were in some sort of a band. Now, regardless of what kind of music they played, I think it's just the idea that someone who is now this straight-laced, very quote-unquote normal kind of person who has a regular, real job as a substitute teacher for little kids at one point was this crazy, wild, free person who dressed up and put on makeup and played in a rock band. And so I think it's just supposed to be the, the ultimate extreme of... This is what you are now. Want, want. This is what you were before. Yay! So I think that's all you're supposed to read into it. Mm. So obviously Jack Black takes the phone call and like, you know, it's the school calling for Ned Schneebly and he becomes the, you know, he sits in for him and becomes the the, the teacher. But the thing is, like, I, I just love the manic energy that Jack Black puts into this role. Right from when he first gets to the class. Remember he goes over and he sees that star chart on the wall? with the demerits and he just yeah. rips it up like all violently <laughs> and he just he just brings this almost like demonic energy to this part you know what i mean like like i don't think anyone else but him could have pulled this role off like his face at one point he contorts it into this bizarre look that's almost scary it reminded me of that chucky doll from child's play the horror movie his face yeah, yeah. like he's just demonic right um i i found um the uh, I'm thinking of the scene you just talked about where he like destroys the star thing. Yeah. Like to me, uh, like it's clear that some of the students are more uh, receptive and they're more into it. Right. Like you have the the little girl uh, uh, Summer. Was that her name? Yeah. The, where, the, the class factor. Yeah. She's like, yeah. yeah. And so like clearly that was important to her. Mm-hmm. And then he just destroys it. And 
I've kind of find it found it hard to believe. I mean, obviously, with a movie like this, just suspend your disbelief, but that she wouldn't have immediately that night gone home and complained to her parents. Like, there's they're still little kids. They're very emotional. Or they, yeah, I mean, they should be at that age, I would think. I don't believe for a second that she didn't, when she got home from work, uh, from school that day, complain to her parents and said, we had the substitute teacher and and he destroyed this thing that I felt was so important that our old teacher did. And uh, and that alone should have got the parents interested right away. Oh, well, let's let's learn a little bit more about the substitute teacher. But instead, he like swears them all to secrecy almost immediately. OK, guys, this is going to be this top secret project. And you can't tell everyone. You can't tell any of the other teachers or students or your parents. I had a real hard time believing that all those kids were able to keep that secret for as long as they did through the course of the movie. Now, obviously, the, for the story to work, mm-hmm. you have to buy in on that. So yeah, I'm willing to suspend point. disbelief. But that was one of the things right away where I was just like, I don't buy it. But they're, and they're all into classical music. And I like how he gets them all to make the switch from classical music to rock. And in some cases, just as simple as like turning the cello sideways into a bass guitar like he does with the yeah. one girl. And then he trades in like those crash cymbals for a drum kit for Freddie. And he moves Lawrence from the piano to the synth keyboard. But the, the, the whole scene where he's getting them to embrace like these new instruments and the new music, he just, you can just tell he's just walking around just improvising the whole time. It's just so, so, so good. And then, and then I love how he's getting them to switch to rock. So he's like, okay, what are your musical influences? <laughs> And they're like, Christina Aguilera. He's like, no. And the one kid's like, Puff Daddy. He's like, what? No. <laughs> that, that Billy kid's like, Liza Minnelli. He's like, ah. He's like freaking out. It's, that made me laugh so much in that scene. He's like, but yeah. I, like, I mean, yeah, yes, it was played for laughs. Mm-hmm. But it, this sort of contradicts what you've been saying before about how he's like inclusive and, and gets the kids to sort of like, they want to do something. He's agreeable. He, you got to think like really he thrusts his musical opinions and his musical tastes upon these kids. He, they have their own tastes. They have their own things. And he's like, no, no, that sucks. No, you can't like that. And I mean, I get it for the bigger part of the, sh- the story. It's called school of rock they've got to be in a rock band and all the rest of that but at the very beginning when he first meets him and he first has this conversation with him he's pretty heavy handed and judgmental about like no your your tastes are wrong my tastes are right and I'm gonna I'm gonna teach you about my thing now it's one thing to say I'm gonna teach you about the kind of music I like and let them make their own decisions and it's very possible that under that context they would have come around to the the answer that he wanted them to have but I, that was one of the things that I felt just seemed a little out of place given the rest of the movie was that he was just so heavy handed right out of the gate. No, this this is wrong. You can't like that music. No, that that's the wrong kind of music to like. Again, just yeah, a little. I, just I a think little. It was, yeah, you, there's a good point. I think it was more like he was trying to open them up to all this stuff because, you know, yeah. like Led Zeppelin and, like, and he's like, what? You never got the lead out? You know, Sabbath, ACDC Motorhead. So it inspires him to start teaching. That's the the catalyst, right? Because he's like, okay, yeah, we have two new lessons. Because before that, he was like, just do recess. Just take it easy, right? right? And then at that point, then he realized he's got to do two lessons every day. Rock history and rock theory. <laughs> and I like that. And he gives out the CDs to the kids so they can learn about rock. But one thing I noticed in that scene, he gives the drummer 2112 by Rush. And yep. he says to the kid, this is Neil Pert. Okay. 
As a Canadian, I'd like to clear something up. The drummer from Rush was not Neil Peart. It's pronounced Neil Peart. Like ear with a P at the beginning and a T at the end. And we mentioned this when we did our episode on the best drummers of all time. I remember Yancey. He didn't know that either. But the drummer for Rush, who was the greatest rock drummer of all time, was Neil Peart. Okay, a little Canadian history lesson of the day for everyone. See, I should be teaching. I should be teaching rock history and rock theory. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah, well, you are the teacher. It's interesting you bring that up. One of the things that was on my watch list that I didn't go into was I watched a documentary about Rush uh, that mm-hmm. my that our our good friend Greg Martin recommended to me, and it was called Rush Time Machine, 2011, live in Cleveland, and it's like a three hour movie. Uh, of the band performing live in Cleveland in 2011 is fantastic. So I, I, I like that you brought it up. I was like, hey, I've already had my Rush exposure this week. And uh, so there's another record if you're looking for something good to watch. Rush Time Machine from 2011. It was nice. awesome. Oh, another another aside, now that you're on the side, I have an aside as well. When he sits down with those other teachers, I recognize one of them. Gabe was the teacher he was talking to. I recognize him from Private Parts, the Howard Stern movie. Okay. Which is an amazing movie, by the way. That's a great movie. Oh, man, so good. The guy that played Gabe, um, he was Howard Stern's station manager at the Detroit station. He comes to see Howard in the park. Remember, he takes a Frisbee to the face. And he oh, changes yeah, yeah, the station yeah, yeah. to country music, so Howard right. quits. WWW. Yeah. yeah. So, anyway, just on the side. Okay, so go back to he's teaching the kids about rock. I like how he says, he's like, what's rock all about? And they're and they're like... Scoring chicks, getting <laughs> wasted. <laughs> he's like, no, it's well, they're not wrong, but it's I don't think that's the answer he's looking for. But he's like, no, it's sticking it to the man. It's so this is such a good scene. He tries to get them to lash out at the man, and, it, and he's like, Ms. Mullins, she's the man, you know. And then he's like, I'm the man. Stand up to me. And so Alicia, who's one of my favorite girls, there, she's like, Get out of here, you stupid. And then Summer's like, you're the worst teacher I've ever had. Then Lawrence says, you're fat and you have body odor. (laughs) I was just laughing so much at that. And then Dewey's basically like, what makes you angrier than anything? You know? And, And then that Billy kid's like, you're tacky and I hate you. He's like, okay, see me after class. <laughs> the whole scene was so funny, I thought. But they make that that song, like they improvise and they do this song called Step Off, which I thought was I thought it was a pretty good scene, you know? And then and then right after it, they walk in the hall and Freddie's got his uniform sleeves rolled up and Miss Mullins like, hey, roll those sleeves down, you know? And the big kid's it's like, Ms. Mullins, you're the man. And she's like, thank you. <laughs> like it's a compliment. <laughs> I thought that was pretty funny too. Oh, also the scene when Jack Black it becomes the man with Freddie. Remember when Freddie's in the van with those burnouts? Yes. And they're playing yes, cards, yes. and he's like, and he's like, "You guys got to start acting like responsible adults." I love how he points his finger at the guy and then just kind of just like waves it away. I don't know. There's something funny about that too. I thought. And I wanted to mention Frank Whaley. So he was in charge of Battle of the Bands. He was uncredited in this movie by the way mm-hmm. and he's been a working actor for years and I, I think most people know him from Pulp Fiction I was gonna say gotta be from Pulp Fiction right? yeah as Brett you know yeah. the, the metric system and he's like check out the big brain on Brett 
But yeah. for me, oh man, he was always so good as the the young Moonlight Graham. Yep, I was just about oh, to say Field of God, Dreams. Field of Dreams. God, yeah. he was good in that. But uh, but I thought he was good in this too. I like he, he's like kids. What is this a gimmick? I don't know. I thought he was really good in this role. So, um, you want to talk about a couple of scenes that were, you know, kind of stood um, out to you? I have a really couple. less so about the scenes, just sort of about some of the issues I had. Okay. Um, oh yeah. So again, watching it with the today's lens, just the idea that, um, you know, the fact that he straight up stole the identity of his friend and pretended to be him as a teacher, like there's no way that he wasn't going to have extensive jail time once this was, <laughs> once this was learned. It's like the fact that he was working with kids, the facts that it, the fact that, you know, it was unsupervised and that he was pretending to be someone else and that he took them off school property on these field trips. Like, there is no chance that he was like you have the happy ending at the end of the movie where it's like, hey, you know, uh, all's forgiven. He's opened up this uh, school of rock after school program where the kids are going to come and hang out and do the rest of that. And I'm like, that's great. And maybe he'll do that in 15 years when he gets out of prison. But he's <laughs> definitely going to prison. I'm sorry. Like, yeah, you're white, but that's not good enough in this case. You are going to jail, buddy. You committed the crime. You're doing the time. Uh, and, um, yeah, that, that, uh, again, you got to suspend your disbelief for this kind of a movie. Like, right. Hey, I watch a lot of science fiction. You got to yeah, suspend your disbelief you on a lot of stuff, but it's just some of those little details, some of the extravagance, some of the just outrageous things that he's able to get away with. And, and I understand that in a comedy, you just have to accept that the hero is going to do outrageous things and people are not going to question it. They're not going to apply real logic unless they're Sarah Silverman, who seemed to be the only one that really knew what was going on and did the right things that grownups should do in this circumstance. But the fact that at the end, the, the kids are, or the parents are all like, yeah, you know, my kid did is in this rock band and they're doing great. Okay. Well, you know, clearly the implication is the parents didn't press charges and the parents were like, okay, all's forgiven because my kid is now coming out of their shell and, and they're, they've gained confidence and they're learning these skills. And that's all great. But the fact that it was all done in secrecy and that they weren't actually following a real lesson plan and that he's not a real teacher and they didn't technically have permission to do any of this stuff, like he's going to jail. I think it's because when you put on a great show, it can change the world. And I think that was what it was. They all went there and they saw their kids on stage and doing this great show. So that was the, the, the implication. Sure. You know? And it totally was the implication. And yeah. for, for purposes of, of uh, uh, the plot device, I'll suspend my disbelief, but as I'm watching in the back of my mind, I'm just going, dude, you are, you are just <laughs> digging your own grave here. You are going to prison. So I want to mention a couple of scenes that I really liked. So one sure. was the, the math song when Miss Mullins comes in to, to observe his class and he, mm -hmm. he's playing the, the guitar and he's like, math, 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 math. And then the, the one when he's like, if 54 is 45 more, then what is the number I'm looking for? And I, and I used to sing this song when my son was a baby at bath okay. time. I used to always sing this song from this movie. And it would just make him laugh and laugh and laugh and laugh. And uh, he just recently turned 10. And even just tonight, because I'd watched this movie recently, I sang this all to him. And mm -hmm. he was laughing his head off. I love that scene. I thought it was good. I also like the scene when they're in the bar drinking beer. He asks her out for coffee. Right. But he takes her to the, the, the bar. They're drinking beer. And then he puts Stevie Nicks on the jukebox, right? Because he heard from the other teachers that yeah. she once got drunk and she sang the, the Stevie Nicks song. So he, he tried to, to get her to to, get, to go on the, the the field trip, right? The Battle of Bands. 
Right. And um, then after they get back, they're in the van. And she's like, everyone thinks I'm a bitch. But she does just mouths the words. Yeah. She can't even say it. It's like, well, this scene, I don't know. And, and of course, what does he say? He's like, no, man, you're cool. You know, again, he's like encouraging them. I don't know. I thought that scene. Well, but I mean, I think in that case with, with uh, John Cusack, it's more... He's trying to butter her up so he can get what he wants. Now, mm-hmm. that's not to say that he's he doesn't genuinely think these things, but I didn't get the sense that he genuinely thinks these things. I think in that circumstance, he was being manipulative to get what he wanted. I think he was when they were in the bar, but when they were in the van, I feel like he was being honest. He was like, no, you're you're actually cool, you know. Um, so another scene that I think is important is, is Zach's song. So they're in class, and he overhears Zach <clears throat> playing that new song, Teacher's mm-hmm. Pet. And his ears perk up because he just knows like, oh, this is a good song. And it totally is. And then they all start to learn it. And then they start adding in all the stuff to it. You know, like the bass and the drums and the ooh-la-las and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really good. And then the parent-teacher night. <laughs> this is this is where the truth comes out, <laughs> right? So I love how they're in the van, him and Joan Cusack. And he's trying to come clean to her. And he's like, I can't go in there. I'm not a teacher. I'm a fraud. And he means it literally, but she takes it figuratively. Right. She's like, you are a teacher. You just have to believe in yourself. <laughs> you know, I thought that the scene was pretty funny. And then he gets in front of the, the parents and he's like, like you said, the cops are coming in. Right. So he's like, my name is Dewey Finn and I've been touched by your kids. And I'm pretty sure I've touched them again with the mix up of the literal yeah. versus figurative thing, you know, that whole joke. And then. The typical script, you know, and you and I have talked about this before. Everything always goes to hell in the second act, right? Like he loses his teaching job. He gets kicked out of his apartment. He goes to prison. Oh, no, wait. He didn't. Oh, no, no. He didn't go to prison. He totally should (laughs) have. He should have, according to you. End of movie. Act three. The teacher goes to prison. I like how the kids stand up for him then. Because Lauren stands up for him. And so does Tamika. Remember, she threatens Freddie the drummer. And um, and the, the, the kids are, okay, so what are we going to do about it? And another great line from Alicia. She's like, I say we get out of here and play the damn show. <laughs> just, <laughs> just, I love that girl. She was great. But probably my favorite line in the whole movie, and I alluded to this earlier, the kids all leave school, right? They go to get Jack Black and go to the show. And Joey Cusack, <laughs> I just laugh thinking about it. She walks into this room of the, all these angry parents and she says, I've just been informed that all your children are missing. So, and she just waves her hands like, what can you do? And I, just, I laughed out loud at that scene. I thought that, that was one of my favorite lines in the whole movie. <laughs> Did you like it? Uh, again, by the end, I was sort of like, we're racing to the finish here. Let's just let's just get it over with. Uh, oh, man. So I, you, were, I, you were really like enjoying the whole movie really so much. No, I thought I found like basically I thought it, I thought that the ending sort of fell flat. I mean, the sh- the concert mm. and the performance was great. And you knew that was how it had to end with this great show. And I liked that they didn't win because I think that that uh, was more reflective of the movie. Like you can still try and not win, but you can still learn the lesson. So that part of it, I, I totally thought worked well. But sort of the last 10 to 15 minutes leading up to it. And then there was a the little tack on at the end. I just, I felt that the, the third act for me didn't really pay off in the way I wow. felt. Oh, I, I, I couldn't disagree with you more. That climactic scene is probably the best scene in the whole movie. Like, like, so 
But the, the, here's, the, here's the one thing that I thought was weird, though. It's a battle of the bands. It's a packed house. But it's in the middle of the afternoon on a weekday. Like, yeah. what, what the hell was up with that? That was really weird. You know, I mean, I think, but oh my God, what a show. That song they did was awesome. Yeah, There's it was really so good. so much going on in that song, especially if you're a, a musician. Like, the, the guitar intro, the tight drums, the... The, the simple three chords that they use, the, just the keyboards, the vocals, the background vocals. When Tamika comes out there and does her vocal solo, oh my God. And his guitar solo, Jack Black's, he just shreds it, man. And I love Lawrence with the spiked hair and he's pointing at the audience when he's playing the keyboard and the stage. Dive. Everything about that song just worked so well. I thought it was mm-hmm. great. And I remember seeing them one time all of them, Jack Black and all the kids, they performed that song. I think it was on Late Night with Conan O'Brien. It was one of the late night shows. And okay. uh, and then I actually have this song, Teacher's Pet, on a mix CD in my car. And my kids love it. I play it all the time. And then, as you mentioned, they don't win. Mm-hmm. And I love that they don't win. Like, just like you said, the, the lesson is, you know, you don't always win. You know, and it's and it's okay because because rock isn't about winning, right? It's about putting on a great show, and and they yeah. and they did, and then they, they come off stage and Joan Cusack is like, "That was amazing. Was that really you playing?" And he's like, "You're not mad." And she's, like, "I'm furious. <laughs> Just love, I love her so much. She was so good." And then the audience obviously knows that they put on a great show. They get them to do the encore, and then they they do the dissolve, and and so you're saying you didn't like how he was like running that after school program and they did that whole improvisation thing over the credits when they're doing it. Well, it was entertaining, but I, I felt it was outside of the movie. I mean, the, the, the real end, the real ending of that movie is he is punished and I really didn't get the sense. Well, not, not the sense. He was absolutely not punished for what he did. Like he clearly did wrong things through the course of the movie yet he has suffers no consequences and, no punishments. In fact, he's rewarded with this after-school program and being able to continue to do the thing that he loves, despite the fact that he has, you know, committed these crimes. Like, who are we kidding? This is a criminal behavior. Um, so that that to me is why I didn't feel the ending worked. But to your point, the actual musical number that they do at the end with the improv and stuff, that was fun. That, and and again, the the actual show when they do the Battle of Bands, that was great. It was, you know, it was entertaining and all the rest of that. I just... I didn't feel the narrative around those those things uh, worked for me f- sort of towards the end of the movie, which I think is part of the reason I didn't care for it the first time. And I think was sort of this time I liked it more than I th- expected to. But I definitely felt that uh, it, I mean, it had. Like, its well, who's who's going to punish him? I mean, like, you know, his 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 roommate's not going to punish him. He's now on his side and he's actually teaching in the program, if you remember it. Yeah. He's teaching the kids how to play like a C chord and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. The, the school is not going to punish him because, I mean, he, you know, he, he, he put on a great show and now he's offering this after school program that the parents are going to punish him because they all get to see their, their kids like open up and come out of their shell and be on stage. And like the parents are even like, Hey, your son is very skilled. And he's like, yeah, you, so is yours. Like, so I don't think, I, I don't think, I don't think the parents would let it go. I think enough of the parents would make a stink and then the school would have to respond to protect their reputation and to stay afloat as an institute. I, again, you need to suspend your disbelief for this, but you I, know what, Derek, you are the man. You're the man. Well, I thank you. 
you're the man, <laughs> you know. And uh, but I don't know. I thought that, that that best scene was the Battle of Bands, and it's followed by the second best scene with the credits roll. I love that whole scene. Mm-hmm. I, I thought it was great. He Jack Black, Black is basically improvising for like five minutes. Yeah. <laughs> it's just incredible. Like, he's like the face melting solo, you know, and then the keyboard solo, the vocal solos. He's spinning around on the floor and everyone's laughing, including Marta, which is so funny. I, I thought this movie was a lot of fun to watch. It's it's very formulaic, you know, and it's a vehicle for its star if there ever was one. But I felt it was a lot of fun to watch. I liked it a lot. You want to give it a rating out of 10? Six. Mm, I a, think gener- I, a generous six. I think I would go to 7.5. I think I would give it a 7.5 out of 10. I really But do. I think, again, though, I think mm-hmm. that this movie speaks to you more than it speaks to me, partly because you're a teacher, you're mm-hmm. a parent, you're more into music, like you've you've performed. Like, I think it, it touches more of the points that you can relate to than it does for me. So I, I, I fully expected that you would have a higher score than me. Yeah, I don't know. I thought it was great. And so... Anyway, we'll go from there. Anyway, let's have some fun with Caveman. All right, my friend, it is over to you. I nominated this film, so I guess you're taking away the trivia. What do you got for us? Yep, we're gonna uh, we're gonna do our our default staple here, and we're gonna play a little game that we like to call Pick the Flick. Pick the Flick. Yeah, Pick the Flick. You get the synopsis. Then pick the flick. You get the year. Pick the flick. All right, what do you got for us? All right, so this movie is called School of Rock, or it maybe it was supposed to be called The School, the of, School Rock. of Rock. Who knows? There have been a lot of movies that have the word school in the title. So okay. I've got a list of movies here. All of them have the word school in the title. I'll give you the year. I'll give you a little synopsis. And if that still doesn't work, I can give you a little hint. Maybe somebody who starred in the movie. And all I need you to do is tell me the name of the movie, knowing that every answer will have the word school in the answer. Okay. Should Ready? Be interesting. All right. And I try to bounce back and forth because there are a few newer ones and a few older ones. So I, the newer ones I know may be outside your wheelhouse, but hopefully you can make an educated guess. I'll do my all right. Best. We're going to start with something, uh, well, newer from your standards, 1997. Okay. All right. Uh, two dim-witted, inseparable friends hit the road for their 10-year reunion and concoct an elaborate lie about their lives to impress their classmates. Oh, that was um, Romy and Michelle's high school reunion. Yes, yes. Nice. All right. Nice. Go back right into your comfort zone, 1987. Okay. Please let me read the entire synopsis before you jump in with the answer, because you'll probably get this one. Okay. A gym teacher must teach remedial English if he wants tenure. As he can only teach gym and his students only want to have fun, there's a lot of emphasis on field trips until he finds out that he'll be fired unless his students pass their final test. Was it summer school? It was summer yes. school. You had mentioned that recently, so I kind of... Yeah, no, I like that movie a lot. Yeah. All right. Uh, This one's going back to the 90s. 1996. Okay. Richard Clark has just left the well-known Wellington Academy to teach at Marion Barry High School. Now he will try to inspire D average students into making good grades and trying to woo a fellow teacher. 
And that was from 96? It stars Saturday Night alumnus John Lovitz. I don't know. It was a parody film called High School High. Oh, I think I remember hearing that title, but I'm not familiar with the movie. So it was not great. Yeah. All right. Well, it had John Lovitz in it. So well, yeah. Fact. As the star, he <laughs> exactly. was the number one above the above oh, the fold. Bill. Good God! Uh, all right. This one I'd never heard of, but I'm sure you're going to know. It's from 1986. Mm-hmm. The zany students at a wacky flight attendant school have all sorts of wild and crazy high flying adventures in this 80s comedy. From 86. I should know that one. It stars Donnie Most and Judy Landers. Oh, good God. From 86? Oh, I don't know. It's called Stewardess School. Oh, it sounds kind of familiar. Donnie Most from Happy Days. Oh, from Happy Days, oh, yeah. Geez, I was like, oh, Chris Chris's going to know this. Ralph okay. Melf. Yep. All right, 1992. Okay. Uh, the movie's from 1992, but... But the movie itself takes place in 1959. And in 1959, a star quarterback from a working class family is given an opportunity to attend an elite New England preparatory school. But he is conflicted about whether he should tell his evangelical classmates that he is Jewish. Ooh, and this was from 92. I actually talked about this on the podcast probably about two or three months ago. Did this have your boyfriend Matt Damon in it? Oh, it did. It's School Ties with Brandon Fraser. Yes, 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 that's the one. I have not seen it, but I'm familiar with it. I've heard of it. All right. Here's another one from 1988. A not so popular young man wants to pledge a popular fraternity at his historically black college. It was written and directed by Spike Lee, if that helps. Oh, it's School Days, right? Yes, yes, I, it is. I don't know why. I thought that was like in the 90s for some reason. I think that more in the 90s. Nice. All right. This one, I, I really don't think you're going to get. But mm-hmm. hey, sometimes you've seen some of these weirder, newer movies. So this is from 2006. All right. So probably I don't know it. Probably not, but I'll yeah. fire it out at you anyway. A young guy short on his luck enrolls in a class to build confidence to help win over the girl of his dreams, which becomes complicated when it turns out his teacher has the same agenda. Mm. Any stars in it? It stars Billy Bob Thornton as the teacher. Oh, God. I don't know. It was called School for Scoundrels. Oh, okay. It had the guy who was the lead in Napoleon Dynamite as the other guy. So, all right. Uh, here's one from 1983 that I had never heard of until I started digging through the, the archives here. But all you'll right. probably know right away. Uh, so I can't speak to this synopsis because I haven't seen the movie. Uh, Chris from a girl's boarding school loves Jim from a nearby boys boarding school. Jordan also wants Jim and plays dirty. Jim and two friends visit the girls school posing as girls. Oh God. What the heck was the name of it? They were, they, they dressed as girls. It wasn't night school. It was not night school. It starred Phoebe Cates. Yes, Phoebe Cates was in. Oh, what the hell was the name of it? They, I'll give you a second. Matthew guess. Modine was in, and he dressed like yep. a girl. And they went over. It was. Um, oh, good God! How can I not remember the name of this movie? I didn't really like it that much, but I, I, oh, I can't remember the name of the title of it. 
Oh, jeez, uh, I was give called, up. It was called private school. Private school, that was it. Oh, yeah, it was like private lessons, private school. Yeah, I should have known. There that. you go. Yeah. I love the word school in the answers. Yeah. All right, <clears throat> this one, although you, well, you might have seen this, but even if you haven't, I think you might still get it. Okay. A popular high school athlete and an academically gifted girl get roles in the school musical and develop a friendship that threatens East High's social order. From what year? 2006 and there were two sequels so i remember seven in 2008 i remember one of my best friends uh his kid loved this i'm pretty sure it was high school musical was that guy? yep yep Zach Efron started the first one yeah all right nicely done yeah I, I figured your kids might have seen that one mm. so that's why i thought all right we're going right back into your wheelhouse 1979 perfect okay Music fanatic and delinquent Riff Randall battles it out with the strict new principal of Vince Lombardi High School, Miss Toger, with help from his favorite band. Was PJ Souls Starring in that movie? PJ Souls. Yes, Rock and Roll High School. It's rock, the rock, 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 rock and Roll High School. Yep. Yeah. Nice. Love it. All right. A uh, little newer, but I think you're going to get this. Right. 2003. Three friends attempt to recapture their glory days by opening a fraternity near their alma mater. Oh, you made me watch this one. It's old school. Yes, old yeah. school from 2003. Same year this movie came out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Earmuffs. All right. Only got two more for you here. This one's really new from 2018. Oh, wow. I don't think you'll get it, but I figured I'd throw it out there anyway. Yeah, a group a group of high school dropouts are forced to attend evening classes in hopes that they will pass the GED exam to finish high school. Oh, movie God, stars I... Kevin Hart. No idea. It's called Night School. No. Okay. It was actually pretty good. I watched it on HBO not too long ago. <laughs> All right. Last one. Nice, easy one. You should have no problem getting this to finish it out. 1986, right mm-hmm. in your sweet spot. Okay. To help his discouraged son get through college, a fun-loving and obnoxiously rich businessman decides to enter the school as a student himself. This is one of your favorite it is. comedies, Back to School. Back to School with Rodney Dangerfield. Yes. Yep. You no. like that one a lot. I do. I, I like it. I just rewatched it like two weeks ago. Yeah. Nice. Nice. All right. Still pretty good. It? Oh, yeah. It's great. Good. I've seen it so many times, though. I know all the dialogue, and so it's... Anyway, no, you did pretty good. I mean, I knew that some of the newer ones you probably weren't going to get, but uh, no, you did pretty good on most of those old ones. So nicely done. So there you go. So it's so I picked this movie that was 20 years old. So it's over to you to pick a movie that's also celebrating its 20th anniversary. So what would you like me to watch for next episode? So I mentioned to my wife what I picked, and she was not very impressed with my selection. So I'm hoping that this doesn't scare away our listeners, but I want to walk you through a little bit of the rationale here. Okay. So we needed a movie from 2003, and we've actually done quite a few movies from 2003 already. Uh, um, I also find that we don't we don't give female filmmakers enough love on this show, and I, I mean that's. Partly because a lot of the older movies we watched, they're just female filmmakers didn't have the opportunities back then that they they are starting to get now. Right. So we just had International Women's Day uh, yesterday, and uh, this movie was actually on TV a couple of days ago. And I thought, oh, I haven't seen this in a while. I, I thought, I'll just watch this, this scene. And then I ended up watching like a half an hour of it. I'm like, you know what? It came out in 2003. We're doing this. So nominated in 2003 for 
Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay, and Best Actor in a Leading Role. We're going to go back to Sofia Coppola's Lost in Translation, starring Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson. Well, Bill Murray is one of my favorite actors from the 70s and 80s, as you know, with meatballs and stripes Mm -hmm. and Ghostbusters Mm -hmm. and stuff. So this should be pretty fun. Sofia Coppola directed this. Yeah, because she came off of like that real sort of disastrous Godfather 3 whole situation. And then she went into directing and did this. Oh, this should be interesting. Writing and directing. There's a note here in the in the IMDb. It says Sofia Coppola became the first woman to be nominated for writing, directing and producing Mm. in the same year. Uh, She won her. She won an Oscar for this film for best screenplay. Did not win for Best Picture, did not win for Best Director, and Bill Murray, unfortunately, did not win for Best Actor, which is still, in my mind, a travesty. I thought he absolutely should have won for this movie, especially given the competition he had, but we can we can debate that next week. We now, will dive seen, into it, I'm Have sure. you seen this movie before? No. Okay, it's, uh, I mean, it, it's not our typical fodder. It is a character study. It is it is a dialogue-driven film. Uh, it's not one of your shoot 'em up action movies. It's not a laugh-out-loud comedy, so... You know, that was why when I mentioned to my wife we were going to watch this, she's like, man, talk about a snooze fest. But as a movie person, I think hmm. I'm hoping you're really going to like it. I'm really looking forward to going back and watching it start to finish 20 years later. So this should be interesting. If she didn't like you picking this one, we'll have to see how this one goes. And, and I, I'm a big fan of Bill Murray, as you know. So this should be interesting. So mm-hmm. oh, this will be good. All right. So we are going to come back next week. We're going to review Lost in Translation, celebrating 20 years as well. Hard to believe, I guess. But until then, this is Chris McBrien on behalf of myself and Derek Meyer saying thanks for listening to Pop Culture World, the pop culture podcast for the generations. Thanks for listening to Pop Goes Your World. You can contact Chris and Derek at popgoesyourworld.com. Please take a minute and review the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download and listen to the show. 